that I'd like to direct your attention to this morning are found once again in the book of Colossians. We'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. Colossians 2, 9 through 15. Paul writes, For in him the full fullness of deed bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Please pray with me before we look at his word. Lord, we pray because... We know how much we need your help. We don't want to just read your word. We want to be transformed by it. We want our minds to be renewed. And so we ask, Spirit, that you would work in power, in prayer, and through your word, that all of us would be transformed. That no heart here would remain untouched. That no mind would fail to be built up that you would clarify to us all that has been given to us in Christ. And Lord, there's so much in this passage. I know, Lord, I can't unpack it all. I don't understand it all. But that you would continue to give us categories to understand so that we would worship more, that we'd be stronger in the faith and that we would be more Christ-like in all of our behavior. And in our affections, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Growing up, my favorite superhero was Superman. That's probably a lot of people's favorite superhero. I love Superman. In fact, you may not believe this, but it's true. I was actually around when all four of the Superman movies starring Christopher Reeves came out. I'm that old, believe it or not. Um... But I think my favorite of all those Christopher Reeves Superman movies was Superman 2. And I won't get into all the plot, but one of the major aspects of that that movie is uh, Superman decides to marry Lois Lane. But in order to do this, he has to give up his superpowers by exposing himself to red Kryptonian sunlight in some crystal chamber and thereby become mortal. And I remember as I watched that movie as a child thinking, what is he doing? Giving up all his superpowers? And for a girl? (laughs) Well, obviously Superman isn't real, so it's not a big deal. 
But tragically, there are many people who have forsaken even greater blessings, even greater powers, so to speak, by falling away from Christ for even lesser things than a girl. Paul writes Colossians chapter 2 in order to help the Colossians understand the greatness of the benefits that they have by being in Christ. He wants them to understand the richness of being united with Him. And He wants them to understand this so that they would not be tempted to fall away into vain philosophy and empty deceit. As He says in verse 8 that we looked at last week, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He says, don't fall away to those things because if you follow those things and walk away from Christ, you need to understand all of what you're rejecting. What you're rejecting will make what Superman gave up look pathetic. So Paul emphasizes three particular benefits of being united to Christ. He says Christians are filled in Him. They're circumcised in Him. And also they are forgiven in Him. Let's look first of all at that first point. Christians are filled in Him. This speaks to the doctrine of unification in verses 9 and 10. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. The combination of verses 9 and 10 are some of the most mind-blowing statements that are given in all of Scripture. Now, Scripture gives a lot of Profound truth. But these verses might be some of the most profound. Verse 9 is just absolutely stunning. The whole fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily. But when you add verse 10, it becomes exponentially more stunning. Because he says, all that fullness that dwelt in Christ, because you're in Christ, it dwells in you. That's what he's saying. If I could just rephrase this more simply, he's saying, first of all, in verse 9, Jesus is fully God. And in verse 10, therefore, the fullness of God dwells in you if you're united with Christ. And the emphasis actually is on this second assertion. Because Paul is wanting the Colossians to understand the benefits of being in Christ. And his statement in verse 9 really is just a reminder of what he taught in chapter 1. And he brings it up again to give clarity to the significance of being indwelt by God. He wants them to understand what it means that God dwells in them. The word full is, is the key word in both verses. Actually, that's why I prefer the, the translation in verse 10. You have been made full because it better clarifies the, the word play there. 
Again, he's saying, since Christ is fully God, you are full. For you are, you are in Him, who is the fullness of all fullness. You can't get fuller than God. You can't get more full than full. I mean, a, a cup that's thrown into the bottom of the ocean is full. You, you can't get any more full of salt water. Now, for a, another cup to say to that cup at the bottom of the ocean, you need to be more full wouldn't make any more wouldn't make any sense at all. I mean, now and, and the same thing can be said of a Christian for a for a person to say to a Christian, you need to be more filled with God. You can't get more full of God for the fullness of God dwells in Christ and Christ dwells in you. In other words, you're not lacking anything that you need for godliness if you're in Christ. One cannot be perfectly in Christ and not partake of all that Christ is. So besides being made full in Christ, Christians, he says, are also circumcised in Christ. Look at with me at verse 10. Or verse 11, sorry. In Him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by the putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Now there's a lot packed in to this assertion of being circumcised in Christ and a lot that needs explanation. But I would just say this, the main point in verse 11 is that Christians have received a greater circumcision than that which was merely physical. As you know, uh, Jewish men were circumcised or infants, right? When they were babies, they would be circumcised. And the, the language of circumcision, I think, is maybe a bit strange to our ears, maybe even to some people a bit grotesque. But again, we need to remember that Paul is writing to a church that's being confronted with false teaching that's, that, that, that has a very strong Jewish element to it. Um, you, you could call it a... a the, the false teachers being some form of Judaizers. And they're telling these Christians that Christ is insufficient. That they also need to be circumcised and follow the commands given in the Old Covenant law. The problem was, though, that, that these Jews failed to understand that even being circumcised in the flesh was insufficient to secure the covenant blessings. In order to receive the covenant blessings, one not only needed to get circumcised, they actually needed to follow all the covenant law. They needed to fulfill all of it. But the point is, one couldn't keep all of those laws unless their heart was circumcised as well. And therefore, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses asserts very, two very important points about circumcision. If you'd look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. I want you to see this. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Moses exhorts the Israelites with this phrase. He says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. The reason you struggle and have struggled in all your past struggles, and we just went through the book of Numbers, you know how much they struggled. 
The reason for that is because they not only needed to have a circumcised flesh, they needed a circumcised heart. The other reference I want you to look at is in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, where Moses declares how this circumcision takes place. How does one circumcise the heart? Moses writes, Yahweh, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul that you may live. Right. It's reflecting on that first command given in the Shema to love the Lord, their God, with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. That's what they're called to. But obviously everybody struggles to do that and everybody will struggle to do that unless their heart is changed, unless their heart is circumcised. And it's only through receiving the circumcised heart that they will be able to love God with all their being. And what this shows us is that phrase, the circumcision of the heart, is actually the Old Testament phrase for what theologians call the doctrine of regeneration. Now, the the doctrine of regeneration is actually given a number of different terms, most of them metaphorical. Daniel, you want to show us a list of those? Or Isaiah? It's called being born again. This is what most people hear when they hear the doctrine of regeneration. It's John's favorite term. The Apostle John. It's also being called being alive in Christ, receiving new life, becoming a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5. Putting on a new self, having a renewed mind, dying to sin, going from darkness to light. And actually, the most dominant phrase that's used to describe regeneration in the Bible is the word calling. As in Romans 8.28, well, not 8.28, but um, the 18. Those whom he called, he justified. But the Old Testament term is a circumcision of the heart. And Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 5, verse 25, when he writes this. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision just outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. And it happens by the Spirit, not by the letter. So a person receives a new heart, not by getting externally circumcised, but be internally circumcised. So in Colossians 2, Paul's asserting that any Gentile who is in Christ already has a greater circumcision than just merely physical circumcision. He says a circumcision made without hands. So this greater circumcision renders any other circumcision absolutely unnecessary. So to just give an illustration, this would be like a Navy SEAL who has just passed their BUDS training to feel compelled to go back to boot camp to prove that they can hack it. There would be no need. Or somebody who just graduated from MIT with a PhD to feel like they got to go back to, to kindergarten to prove that they can you know, recite their ABCs. Like, absolutely unnecessary. Because the one is so much greater. And it's greater because it's a spiritual circumcision, a circumcision made without hands. It's also greater in that it removes 
the whole body of sin, not just one tiny aspect of it. Right? He says, it's putting off the body of flesh, the whole body. Notice that that phrase body of flesh in verse 11. It's paralleled with the phrase uncircumcision of your flesh in verse 13. So this this tells that Paul is describing the death to sin that took place when we were born again. Paul describes this death more fully in Romans chapter six. We read this earlier as part of the scripture reading. He writes, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul's point is that we've died to our fleshly passions. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We can actually uh, use our bodies for righteousness. He says it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The third thing he tells us about this greater circumcision is in verse 11, and that it was accomplished by Christ. See that phrase, by the circumcision of Christ. So this circumcision wasn't accrued by just some physical act. It was something that happened in the almighty power of God himself. God himself worked this work. So it was a work of supreme power, not just the work of a knife. Now, a person might ask, well, how does this happen again? How, how do we know? How can this happen to me? We know how physical circumcision happens. It's pretty obvious. But how does spiritual circumcision happen? If I wanted to be spiritually circumcised, what do I do? Well, Paul answer, answers this question in two ways in verse 12. With two phrases. In baptism and in faith or through faith. And the two phrases are actually parallel. They're they're speaking of the same thing, actually. Faith being the active agent and baptism, the act that demonstrates the faith. Or you think of it this way. Faith is what the person does internally. They believe in Christ. And then baptism is what they do externally. So that all can see. They declare their faith publicly. So it's really speaking of the same thing. In the early church, the act of being baptized is what symbolized a person's trust in and desire to follow Christ. Today, if a person expresses a desire to follow Christ, they're often told, well, you just need to pray a prayer. Or ask Jesus into your heart. Or raise your hand in a worship service. Or uh, walk an aisle in order to become a Christian. In the early church, if a person wanted to become a Christian, they would get baptized. And I just want want you to see this for yourself. I'm going to walk through the book of Acts fairly quickly. And I want to show you 
through multiple conversion accounts how when a person believed, they then immediately got baptized. The two were connected. Incidentally, this is, this is why a person should be baptized before taking communion. Otherwise, it's like celebrating your anniversary before you've been married. Baptism is, is the initial act where we, we demonstrate our unity with Christ. So I want you to see this, though, in the book of Acts. Beginning in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. After Peter proclaimed the gospel to all those Jews that were gathered at Pentecost, he says this. Or I should say, they respond to him by asking, Brothers, what shall we do? And this is what Peter says. Repent and be baptized. He doesn't say, well, bow your heads and let's pray this prayer with me. No, he says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A few verses later, in verse 41, it also says, that for those who received his word were baptized. And there were that day added about 3,000 souls. A few chapters later in Acts 8, when the Samaritans believed the, Philip's proclamation of the gospel, they demonstrated this by getting baptized. Chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Then later on that chapter, when the Ethiopian eunuch believes, he says, as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from getting baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. In Acts 16, when Lydia and her household believed, they too were baptized. Verse 14 of chapter 16. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after her heart was opened, she was baptized and her whole household as well. She urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us, it says. Again, they didn't pray a prayer. They didn't walk an aisle. They didn't ask Jesus into their heart. They were baptized. Even the Apostle Paul, when he was known as Saul, his first act of faith was to be baptized. Acts 22. It recounts his conversion when Ananias told him, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you've seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Do you see the connection? Salvation was connected with the choice to be baptized. The one, the way a person demonstrated that their heart had been changed, that they'd been born again, that they truly had faith in Christ, was they got baptized. And that's why in the New Testament, salvation and baptism are often seen to be inextricable. They go together because that was the moment where a Christian expresses their desire to follow Christ. So it signifies externally what happens internally when God circumcises 
a person's heart. And notice how back to in Colossians 2, how Paul goes on to explain the circumcised heart's connection with baptism with three phrases. He says we were buried with him. We were raised with him. And we were made alive together with him. And as you note, these are all signaled by the same prepositional phrase with him. The point being that the circumcision of the heart regeneration includes these three things. Now, just to say the obvious, when we believe in Christ, none of us are physically buried or none of us physically die. None of us physically are made alive again. So what's Paul talking about? Paul's point is that when a person is saved, they become so united with Christ that what happened to Christ also happened to them. In being united to Christ by faith, Christians receive all the benefits of Christ's perfect life. So just as if a a person marries a billionaire, all the benefits of that billionaire, everything they own, belongs to that person as well. They get all the benefits, even though they might not have done anything to earn it. They just got married. All those benefits for a lifetime of labor are accrued to their spouse. So let's look at these three phrases just a little more in depth. He says, having been buried with him in baptism. Paul informs us that our our burial occurred at the time of our baptism. So when a person gets baptized, their old self dies. They die to themselves and now they no longer want to live for themselves, but for Christ, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.15. But they die in another sense. Christians also die to death on account of their unity with Christ. Because when Christ died in their place, death no longer became any threat to them. In fact, death now for Christians, it's really no more different than sleep. And I I suppose, especially children, you know, when they go to bed at night, they can be maybe scared of the dark. They're not excited about going to sleep. But they know in the morning they're going to be able to get up again. And likewise for the Christian. All of us one day will perish. But we're going to get up again. Right? Some people may have to go to sleep before us. But we're going to see them again. And we need to remember that death is no longer a threat. It's just sleep. You will go to sleep tonight. Probably most of you are not going to be afraid when you go to sleep tonight. And likewise, when the time comes for us to sleep, just a longer sleep, you will also rise again. So death no longer is a terror to us any more than sleep. And the reason for this is because not only did Christ die, But Christ was also resurrected from the dead. Notice how he draws this out in the next phrase. In which you were also raised with him through faith. Faith is the vehicle in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So because Christ rose from the dead with a glorified resurrected body, it guarantees that one day you will too. Because all the benefits that Christ earned, you earned. If he got a resurrected body, you will get a resurrected body because you're united with him. 
And Paul explains this doctrine more thoroughly in 1 Corinthians 15. And I'd invite you to turn there. If time permitted, it would be worthwhile to look at this whole chapter as he draws out this connection between Christ's resurrection and ours. But I just want to look very briefly at verses 20 and 23. He writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Notice that word. They're just asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Paul makes it really clear. We will be resurrected on account of Christ already being already having been resurrected. But you might be confused at some point and reasonably so, because in first Corinthians 15, it says very clearly this resurrection is something that will happen in the future. We will be resurrected. Christ, the first fruits, then it is coming. Those who are in him will be resurrected. But in Colossians, he indicates that on account of the resurrection, the resurrection we experience has already happened. It's past tense. So which is it? Were, were we resurrected when we were united with Christ? Or will be we resurrected in the future because we're united with Christ? When do we experience this resurrection? Well, both are true. We have been and yet not yet resurrected. We've already been resurrected in the sense that we we are no longer dead to sin. We are no longer spiritually dead. We've been we've made made alive. We we have new hearts. He's taken out the heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh to love him and to live for him, to be able to worship him truly. But we have also not yet received the full benefits of what Christ has given which is the resurrected body. Notice how Paul says this right here in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1. Or sorry, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, past tense, seek the things that are above, present tense, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth, for you have died. Past tense, your life is hidden with Christ and God, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Right here in Colossians, he's showing this connection. You've already begun to accrue the benefits that Christ has purchased for you through his death, burial, and resurrection. But you haven't received all of them in full. You've just gotten a taste. There's more to come. So just as there's a present and future significance to our death in Christ... We have died to sin and we will die to death. There's also this dual significance with our resurrection with Christ. We're presently free from slavery to sin internally, but we will be free from sin completely when we receive the resurrected body. So it's just, it's been an internal work so far, but it'll, it'll eventually be a complete work. When we receive the resurrection. 
If we immediately received our glorified bodies upon our baptism, it would be obvious that a, that a miracle had taken place. Everybody would see it. If, I mean, because the glorified bodies are going to be so wonderful. It's described in Daniel as, as being, they will be brighter than stars. I mean, if, it, if, if somebody were to get baptized and all of a sudden go from the dull body they are to radiant glory, like, it would be obvious a miracle had taken place. But when, when, we, when a person gets baptized today, that miracle isn't so evident. Maybe over time it is, but similar to when new life takes place physically. When, when a baby's conceived, it's not obvious to everybody that that miracle has taken place. It has taken place. And it will eventually be made very clear to everybody. Ask Caitlin. <laughs> but at first, it takes time. And I think spiritually speaking, sometimes it's not obvious when a person has been born again. But over time, that becomes more and more evident. Just like when a person is pregnant, that pregnancy becomes more and more evident. But it, but it hasn't become, come to full fruition. And it won't until that baby has become an adult. Because from the time they're conceived till the time they're an adult, that there's growth, there's a progress. Likewise, as Christians... You have been born again through the living seed of the word of God, as it's described in First Peter. But that seed has not come to full maturity yet. And so it's the, the full benefits are yet to come. A real miracle and yet not immediately evident. And this brings us to the third aspect of being spiritually circumcised, that of being made alive together with him. When Paul indicates that this third benefit of being circumcised is being made alive, he's really just referring to the same doctrine he's been talking about, just using a different phrase. And and actually, this is pretty obvious because clearly being buried and raised with Christ is the same thing as being made alive with Christ. But the reason Paul reiterates it this way, why he rephrases it as saying being made alive in Christ, is to show the connection between regeneration in the Christian And one of the greatest benefits that Christians uh, receive on account of regeneration. And that's the benefit of forgiveness. Which is the third thing we'll look at. We are forgiven in Him. Look at verse 13. On account of being made alive in Christ, it says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And notice how he draws us out vividly by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Again, Paul's main point in these verses is to remind the Colossians of this amazing benefit of being in Christ. They're forgiven for all of their sins. Note in verse 13, all our trespasses. But I want you to note especially who the main actor is in these verses. Look again at the text. It's speaking to God the Father. 
God made alive. It's God who made us alive together with Christ. It's God the Father who canceled the record of debt. He set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. Now just consider that for a moment. God the Father directed His Son to the cross. God the Father was the one who nailed His Son to the cross. He canceled that record of debt because He, in His sovereignty, so to speak, drove the nails through His own Son's hands so that you and I could receive Forgiveness for all of our sins. Because this was the only way we could be released from Satan's bondage and from his own just wrath. How great the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. And verse 15 goes on to say that when the father did this, he disarmed the rulers and authority. As we saw before in chapter one, the rulers and authorities really refers to demonic entities. He's talking about demons here. And that's actually obvious given what Paul says. And we actually get some insight into the agenda of demons in this passage. The primary agenda of Satan and all the fallen angels is this. They want us to see, they want to see us condemned under the full wrath of God. And they're going to do everything they can to make the case for why we deserve the full wrath of God. Because they want us to experience all the, all the wrath that they deserve for their rebellion. They want us to share in it too. Because we were the crown of God's creation. He made us just a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor, as it says in Psalm 8. And they want God, they want to see God pour out His wrath upon His precious creation. And they know we deserve it. And they are doing their best to make the case that we deserve the full wrath of God. They want to mock God by forcing Him to destroy us through His wrath. And they have a record of evidence against us that's like a hundred miles long that proves that this is exactly what should happen to us. But when Christ was nailed to the cross, that record of debt completely lost its sting. It became null and void. As if there was not one debt on it at all. They sought to put us to shame. But Christ, on account of His work on the cross, has put them to shame. All of their accusations mean nothing. Because He paid our sins in full. All our sins. In the past, present, and the future, completely paid for. That lust paid 
That adultery paid. The sexual immorality paid. The pride paid. The lying and deception. The corruption. That abortion. The anger. The bitterness. All paid in full. And I pound the pulpit because, because Christ had the nails pounded into his hands. And when he did, that sin was paid in full. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. On December 10th, 1936, Prince Edward abdicated the throne of England. After the death of his father, he was the one next in line to receive the crown. But he chose to give up the crown. The first and only English monarch ever to do so. And he gave up all the benefits of being king. Because he wanted to marry a worldly woman named Wallace Simpson. Similarly, Paul is concerned that the Colossians might make a similar mistake, but a greater one, that they would give up all the benefits of heavenly royalty, all the benefits that have been accrued to them in Christ that are already theirs through faith in Him. All the benefits that he draws out in this passage, being having the fullness of God dwell in them, having their hearts circumcised by faith, the, the benefit of all the forgiveness of their sins. And he doesn't want them to throw all those benefits away for some empty, vain, worldly philosophy that in the end will just prove to be nothing except the deception of Satan to keep them from gaining what Christ has purchased. What's remarkable, though, is that all of those benefits that are drawn up in this passage have already been achieved because Christ chose to abdicate His throne. He gave up His heavenly royalty. so that we could receive these benefits of His kingship. And of course, He only gave that up for a time because now over all authorities. But Christ gave all those things up for a time in order to secure for us our salvation, which is why the greatest act of insolence that uh, that we could ever do, any person could ever do, is to walk away from Christ because of what He gave up. To, to reject that for something else would be, the, would be the height of insolence. And that's actually why, why Christ said of Judas that it would have been better for him if he had never been born at all. And so, I don't know where, where each of you are at spiritually. But given how many people even recently in our 
culture have walked away from Christ. It may be that you're just, you know the truth, but you've never yet actually been born again. And because of that, you're in danger, even though you have, these, these benefits can be yours, but because of just a love for the world, because of just some secret pride, because of, I mean, who knows what the issue is that keeps you from fully committing yourself to Christ, from showing that through baptism. You need to know that you are in grave danger of committing the height of insolence. And you will pay for that insolence for eternity. But you don't have to. Because even now, you can turn and repent. You can place your faith in Christ. You can call out to Him and be born again. And so I would appeal to you, if that's you, don't be foolish. Make that decision immediately and be baptized. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that once we have been saved, that nothing can strip us of our salvation. For if we are your sheep, no one can take us out of your hand. And yet, Lord, we can't always tell. And so if there's anyone here who has yet to fully commit their life to you, to submit themselves to your word, to repent from all their sin, that you would open their eyes to see their need to repent and be baptized. And that you would flood their hearts with faith and with joy and with confidence so they would receive all of what you've already purchased on their behalf on the cross. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.